if you have your Bibles with you, we took the first six verses of chapter six in the Gospel of Mark last week. And so we're going to pick right up where we left off. That's what we always do here at The Journey. Uh, we're going to take verses seven through 13 today. And next week, we'll pick back up at verse 14 and go on from there. And that's just, that's just kind of how we roll. And, and today in, in Mark chapter 6, 7 through 13, we see a transition taking place in the ministry of Jesus. And I think it's an important one for us to take some time to meditate upon and to prayerfully think through today. So what's happening here is that Jesus is sending out his 12 apostles. Now, when you and I think about the followers of Jesus in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, we think of the 12 disciples. But here, we see that Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles. That's because, again, functionally, there's a transition taking place in the ministry of Jesus. A disciple would be that student who learns from the rabbi or the teacher, right? And so we have the 12 disciples that have been chosen amongst the followers of Jesus to, to be this kind of inner circle with Jesus. There's lots of disciples of Jesus during this time. At time, there's, there's even up to 70 disciples mentioned, but he had this 12 that he paid special attention to that he especially invested in. And then there was even a kind of an inner circle even within the 12 that he invested in. But at this point, they're called apostles, because the word apostle means sent one. So up to this point in the, in the ministry of Jesus, he's been going from community to community, preaching the gospel, doing signs and wonders. And his disciples, his students, have been following along, and they're allowed to participate while Jesus is there doing the ministry. But now he's going to send them out apart from him to do ministry for the first time on their own without Jesus present. And so he is sending them out with a special authority, authority to preach with his authority. Because remember, Jesus is the one who taught with a special, that's what astonished people. He teaches with, with such great authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees, but his teaching is authoritative. Now Jesus is sending out his disciples as apostles to teach with that same authority. It's special. He's also sending them out to do miracles. We know that the purpose of those miracles in the, in the ministry of Jesus were to validate the message that Jesus taught. And so now he's sending them out with the authority to teach as he taught. And he's sending them out with the authority to do miracles as he did miracles. To validate that, he tru that they truly were apostles of Jesus. So simply put, he is allowing them and commissioning them to do ministry just like he's been doing it up to this point. And so there's a little bit of a shift here. And so just before this moment in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says uh, a line there that you and I, that are, that's familiar to us. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Right after Jesus says that, he commissions the 12, 12 disciples and sends them out as apostles. His ministry is expanding. At times he's exhausted. And this is how it continues to grow. He sends out his apostles. And so really 
this is kind of a grassroots look at what evangelism is. That word evangelism just means taking the gospel into the world. And we get to see this, this organized evangelistic effort that Jesus is sending out his apostles to take that, that gospel into the world. But I, I want to caution us, though. This teaches us a lot about evangelism, but it isn't necessarily a one-for-one. One. Like everything that we see in Scripture doesn't necessarily uh, play out exactly like that in our lives. Like the apostles got to do things that were special. They got to experience things that were special. And it's not that we can't. It's just that I, I think it's worth saying it isn't the normative Christian experience to do a lot of the things that the apostles got to, to partake in. And I think if we don't say that up front, sometimes we live our Christian lives out and we're like, oh, man, nobody's being raised from the dead. Oh, no, people aren't being, uh, lepers aren't being cleansed and, and uh, you know, demons aren't being cast out at the rate they were in the New Testament. Something's wrong with us. But it isn't exactly a one-for-one when you're reading through Scripture like that. But there are some very important principles that I think you and I need to pay careful attention to so that we can apply them to how we live out our life. Because there is a sense in which we've been commissioned to take this gospel into the world, right? We want to take our faith with us and share it, right? We want to take the truth of Scripture into this world and we want to see disciples made. We want to see people become believers, right? But we may not be able to to see the signs and wonders that we're about to see in, in some of the Gospels, okay? So, general truths here I want us to pay attention to. So, 7 through 13, let's just read it in its entirety. 7 through 13 of Mark chapter 6. Let me see if I can find it. Here we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they, sent, so they went out and proclaimed the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the first thing that we see here when he calls the 12 to himself, before he sends them out, sends them out he decides, I'm going to send them out two by two. Now, I think there's two reasons that he sends them out two by two. Here's the first reason. In Jewish culture, if you were in the court of law and you wanted a truth to be confirmed, or if you wanted to have any legitimacy to your argument whatsoever, you had to have two witnesses confirm what you were saying. If you didn't have two witnesses, your testimony was worthless. And so in that culture, you needed at least a couple people on board with what you're saying was true before people would culturally accept that as truth. If you wanted people to take you seriously, you needed to have at least two people. So Jesus sends them out Two by two, because that would have been customary in that time. And that's how they would have been received as legitimate. There are at least two of them. But here's the more practical reason, and here's the, the reason I think you and I need to pay careful attention to, because we don't live in Jewish, Jewish culture. There's strength in numbers. This is just the most basic, practical truth when it comes to evangelism. When you, when you start to think about sharing your faith, 
That's done together. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to do that with other Christians to share our faith. Because when you share your faith, when you share the gospel into this world collectively with other believers, there's a support group that comes with that. There's a lot of rejection that takes place whenever you're sharing the gospel, whenever you're trying to share your faith. But there's support whenever you have multiple Christians sharing their faith together. There's a protection there. There's a fellowship there. And so ministry is not meant to be done on an island. We are all obligated as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to take his gospel into the world. And we are all obligated to do that with the church. We have to do that together. It wasn't long ago I was talking to a parent in this area. And they asked me what I did for a living. They didn't know me. And so, I, you know, again, anytime I tell someone what I do for a living, it's a roll of the dice. I never know what I'm going to get. Sometimes it goes really good. Sometimes it goes really bad. Sometimes it gets weird. Uh, but he said, so what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. And so he gets really excited. Oh, you're a pastor. That's great. I'm a Christian. Awesome. That, I, that's, that's, a, that's a joy to hear, man. Where do you go to church? He immediately uh, looks towards the ground for a second to collect his thoughts. He said, well, yeah, I don't, I don't go to church anywhere, but I worship God in my own special way. Now, on the list of things to never say to a pastor, put that near the top, okay? Because <laughs> like, you know, to say you're a Christian and that you don't participate in the church or don't have a desire to participate in the church, it doesn't make any biblical sense. And so, you know, when you, when you have these strong convictions about the church and scripture, in your mind you're just like, hold, no, do not, just relax. Oh, you know, in my mind I'm just like, well, well, your special way of worshiping is especially wrong. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. I'm playing it cool. But we're meant to do this together. It's the gospel that saves you. And it's that gospel that is to be shared in your life. So when we think about evangelism, taking the gospel into the world, we think of something that we do together. We need each other for this to happen. We need one another. I need you and you need me. Christians need one another to operate as the church and to take his gospel into the world. And that's something that we want to do collectively. And so when we, when we gather together as the church, I have a special obligation as an elder to administer God's word and, and, and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. You need that. But as we scatter into this world, we work together, right? We scatter into the world to take this truth with, with us and to share it with other believers, and then we gather it again uh, we gather together as the church again to bring people in here to share God's word with. And so as we scatter and gather, we scatter and gather collectively to share the gospel with the world. That's what it means to be a, a part of a fellowship of believers. Now in the case of the apostles, they were given a special authority. They got to teach with the authority of Jesus. They were sent out as his apostles. And they were given the authority to do signs and wonders says that they, he, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, again, if you read the same, about the same moment in Matthew's gospel, he says this. He gave them authority to heal the sick, to raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out the demon. That's the same moment. Matthew just gives us a few additional details, as he often does and as Luke often does. 
But again, they were commissioned by Jesus to teach with his authority. And they were commissioned by Jesus to do miracles, the miracles that he did. Now, again, I, I harp on this often because I, I don't ever want us to get this wrong. People got this wrong in biblical times in the New Testament, and it frustrated Jesus. And so you better believe if it frustrated Jesus then, it still frustrates him now. It grieves the spirit. People want to be all about the miracles. It was all about the miracles. That's why Jesus at times just had to get away from people. He had to get alone. It was about the message of the gospel. It was, the, the miracles were very secondary. The purpose of the miracles were to validate the message. So the miracles were secondary, but when he took this ministry into the world, people made it all about the miracles. Uh, yeah, we don't really care about the gospel. We don't care about this Christ thing, this Messiah office. Uh, we, we just want the miracles. Just give us more miracles, 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 miracles. And people do that today. I just want the miracles. I don't so much care about the message. I just want God to do a bunch of miraculous things in my life to make it amazing. And so when we get that wrong, it frustrates Jesus, just as it did then. So when we take the gospel into this world right now, I'm, I'm making a, a, pretty, uh, a pretty good guess here that, that you're not doing signs and wonders when you take your faith into this world, that you're not healing the sick miraculously. You may pray for the sick, as I do. You, you're not raising, I, I've not heard of anyone raising anyone, anyone from the dead. Um, uh, and so we're just not seeing those things. But we take apostle-validated truth with us into this world as we share the gospel. This truth has been validated. It is validated. This is all apostle-approved material that we hold in our hands. This Christian belief has been validated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we certainly do take an authoritative word into this world each time we take the Bible into this world with us. And so when we share our faith, it's informed by a apostle-approved material. Okay, so I don't need to validate God's word. It has been validated. So, okay, at times I talk about differences in, in, in belief when it comes to Christianity. There's, oh man, there's fractures and divisions all over the place. And a lot of times we shy away from those divisions from the pulpit because we don't want to make people uncomfortable. I think they're fascinating, so I don't shy away from them because I like to talk about them. I do have strong convictions. Uh, and so sometimes I become a little more passionate Maybe more so than I should. So I always want to be really polite when I talk about these differences. But I want to be upfront and honest about these differences. So I get the question from time to time. Hey, this ministry or this denomination, they have apostles. And these ministries and these churches, they don't have the title of apostle working in, in how they do ministry. What's the difference? Do you have apostles at your church? Well, there's a few different reasons why there's a variety of uses of the word apostle. And that's because some ministries and denominations, they just use the, the, the word apostle, sent one. They just use it a little more loosely. And so they may use the word apostle to refer to a teacher. And they may refer, use that, that title apostle to refer to a really important teacher. Other ministries use the title of apostle 
just like it's used in Scripture in the sense that it is someone who has been commissioned by Jesus and can do miracles. And so there are some denominations and churches that use that in the same sense that it's used to describe Peter, James, Paul, the, the, the 12 apostles. And so what, how are we to make sense of this? How do we sort through this? What do you do when you come across someone who claims to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I'll just tell you what I do. And you can do what you want to do, and I'll do what I want to do, and we'll, and we'll discuss, and we can argue and debate and have healthy discussion. But it just doesn't make any sense to me to hold someone who claims to be an apostle to any other criteria than what is in Scripture. This is apostle-approved material, and there is criteria that uh, tells us who an apostle is and is not. So scholars kind of boil it down to four main things that we see in Scripture when it comes to an apostle. Here's number one. Every apostle in the Bible has been commissioned by Jesus as an apostle, like physically commissioned by Jesus. As in Jesus talks to them, physically present with them, and commissions them as an apostle. So if someone's going to claim to be an apostle... I want to know that they've been commissioned by Jesus who was physically present with them because that's what happens every single time in Scripture. Even Paul. You may think, well, Paul wasn't one of the 12 disciples originally. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles originally. But we see in Scripture as it plays out, Jesus, a resurrected Jesus, confronts Paul, changes him, knocks him, knocks him down. And, and, and he trains him and commissions him as an apostle of his. Okay, so... Everyone needs commissioned by Jesus, who is to be an apostle. Also, they, the second one is they had all seen the resurrected Christ. We see this, of course, in Acts. Again, we see this in 1 Corinthians, that apostles are ones who saw Jesus resurrected. Number three, this is the third criteria to be an apostle. Apostles were validated as apostles by other apostles. All the apostles were in agreement as to who was a, an apostle and who was not an apostle. And I keep come back, coming back to Paul here because Paul was a special apostle. He would call himself the least of the apostles, right? Because he was actively against Christianity initially until Jesus changed him. But Peter went on to validate Paul as a legitimate apostle. And that's how Christians knew that he was a bona fide apostle. And the fourth criteria that we see that validates someone as an apostle is that apostles did the signs and wonders that Jesus did. As a matter of fact, the church in Corinth, they had a lot of problems, a lot of crazy things going on in Corinth. They had a problem with the apostle Paul. He wasn't one of the original 12. They had some questions. They were trying to be discerning they were like, ah, I don't know, Paul, man, you're, you're writing us these letters and stuff. Are you even really teaching with the authority of Jesus? Are you really authoritative like a, an apostle of Jesus? And he appeals to the criteria that people were to use to determine if someone was an apostle or not. He said, I have the marks of a true apostle. You can look that up in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he said, I have the marks of of a true apostle, I was able to do signs and wonders among you. You saw that. You saw me 
raising someone from the dead. You saw me healing those who were paralyzed. You saw me giving sight to the blind. You saw me doing the miracles that Jesus did, that were unique to him, that validated him as the Messiah. I was able to do those too. That's how you know I have the quote-unquote marks of a true apostle. And so here's my question today. I know that there's a lot, there's a lot of variety in, in the Christian faith, and people use this term in a lot of different ways. Why would I hold anyone who claimed to hold that office? Why would I hold them to any other criteria other than what was in Scripture? If Paul talks about the true marks, or the marks of a true apostle, I want to make sure everybody who says they're an apostle have the marks of a true apostle. And so those are the things that I'm going to hold them to. That's, that's me. And, and so for me, someone who claims to be an apostle like the apostles in the Scripture if they don't check all those boxes, I do to them what first century Christians did to people who didn't check all those boxes. I consider them a false teacher, and they're not telling the truth. That's a liar. And so that's how I think we should view apostles. When they use it to the degree it's used in the New Testament. Now, if they want to use the word apostle with like a lowercase a and use it a little more loosely to talk about important teachers or things like that, I'm not going to get all bent out of shape. I'm not going to, you know, argue and debate with them. But if they try to say that they are teaching with the same authority that the 12 apostles were in Scripture, mm, you're going to have to sit below that for me to be okay with that. And I, I, would, I would suggest that to you too, okay? I better get back to Mark here. I'm going on a tangent. <laughs> but I feel like that's helpful information. When we get back into, into, into Mark here, Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles with that special authority to teach, that special authority to do miracles, and he tells them even what to pack. He says he, it says he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money for their in their belts, uh, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. This is very specific, isn't it? Uh, simply put, this is a short mission trip. Don't pack a lot, uh, a lot of stuff. You're not going really far away. Now, other times in Scripture, you'll see them being sent out, and he'll say to take more than that. You know, take money with you. Take a sword with you. Uh, but here he's saying, you're, you're just going down the road. You're going a few miles here. You're going to stay for a few nights. You're going to come back. You're just going to need your staff, you know. You don't need a sword and all that stuff. You just need a staff. You know, if a wild dog comes up, you might want to beat it. Um, you, you know, you just, it's a walking stick. That's how they would use those things. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Now, Matthew, he, he adds to this in Matthew 10, verse 10. It says, hey, you receive the gospel without paying. Give it without pay. Acquire no gold or silver, or copper for your belts. So Jesus was saying, you're going on this short-term mission trip, you're just sharing the gospel with people, do not collect an offering. You're going to be right back. You're going to be back in a few days. Just don't, don't ask them for a dime. You're just going to stay with them and share truth with them. This is a very short-term uh, thing. And so, again, this is why I say, this isn't, isn't exactly a one-for-one. One. Every time you take part in an evangelistic effort, you don't want to leave your wallet at home because you want to do ministry like the disciples did it, right? You try to go on a short-term mission trip, you're going to want that wallet with you, I promise. <laughs> I've been on several short-term mission trips. My wallet came in handy every single time. You can't even get out of the country without it. You, you need that wallet. And so he, he's saying just 
pack light, don't ask for any money, wear your sandals, don't be wild animals, okay, put on your shoes, but you're not going to need both tunics. You don't need to pack your bags and take every item of clothing that you own, leave your extra tunic here, just take one, just take what you're wearing and, and, and go with that. Then he says, and I want to reread verses 10 and 11, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. That sounds kind of strange to us. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Okay, so hospitality in this time is very different than hospitality now. We just, our cultures are different. Okay, so whenever evangelistic efforts took place or whenever rabbis traveled from community to community, people would take them in and they would stay with them. Okay, so hospitality, it's not that you're not hospitable now, it's just different. If I showed up to your house this week and I said, hey, Pastor Cody here, I'm just going to crash in your spare bedroom for a few days. And if you could do my laundry and feed me while I'm here, I might even mow the lawn for you, I don't know, if you get lucky. You know, you're going to say, get off my lawn, right? <laughs> so, you know, no, no, that's weird. Go away. Uh, but in that day and age, perfectly normal. Perfectly normal to take in a rabbi for a few days. And so if they showed up at your door to teach scripture to you, you would take them in, you would feed them, you'd do their laundry. They would even work around the house with you to kind of earn their keep. That was kind of expected of them. But this was a very frequent Occurrence, And so whenever the New Testament church started to bust out, this way of life continued. And so, they, so Christians and apostles used to give instruction to Christians on when to take people in and when not to take people in. Okay, so uh, they, in, in like 2 John chapter 1, it says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, as in if someone comes to your house, they're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, do not receive him into your house. Or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And so they would give instruction like this because it was so such a, a normal experience to take in rabbis for days at a time. That Hey, if they're not preaching the gospel, don't take him in. And so as the disciples or the apostles of Jesus went out, some people would take them in and some people would reject them. Just like they did, just like Christians did. And so he said... So he said, when you, when you go to their house, right, if someone does receive you, be extra polite. Whenever, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Be thankful for it. What he's saying is if you go to a community and someone took you into their house, you're staying there for a night, but you look down the street and you're like, oh, man, that house is way nicer down there. They got better food down there. They're just cooler than these people. He's saying, don't leave this house and stay there. Stay at the house that took you in. Don't be rude. It would be rude. If someone took you in, it would be rude for you to leave there. No matter what your accommodations are, be thankful for those accommodations. Be appreciative. And stay at that place until you leave that community. Don't go from house to house freeloading off everybody and just trying to find the nicest place to stay. Don't show partiality is basically what he's saying there. But stay there until you depart from there. But if you go to someone's house and they reject you, and that's going to happen, just shake the dust off your sandals, put them back on, and hit the road. What's he mean by that? Well, again, in their culture and in their time, when a Jew would leave Israel to do business, 
when he left the Holy Land and went into Gentile territory, say he, he crossed the Jordan River and went into the area of the Decapolis that we've been studying recently. He went into the, the, the Gentile area, and then he came back. When he got to the border, he would take his shoes off, he would shake the dirt off of his sandals, and then put them back on to symbolize this is clean, this is holy, this is the Holy Land, this is where the temple is. And this is not. It was a testimony against non-believers. And so Jesus takes that cultural understanding and he tells the Christians, or his followers, to if someone rejects you, you know, don't kick and scream. Don't try to jam it down their throat. Don't be rude. Just move on. They're not believers. Just, they've rejected you. So just keep on going and do work where the kingdom is growing. Don't try to force it. Now, I, I think that's another just really practical teaching, a practical just principle that you and I should a, a apply to our lives, right? We, we don't want to force it. There's so many times that, like, I, I feel like Christians are so, so focused on someone in their life being a Christian, they just can't stand it, and they begin to get hyper-focused, and they try to force belief on someone in their family or in the community in which they live, and and what tends to happen? How many people do you know who have a testimony like that? Like, oh, man, my mom jammed it down my throat forever. I hate church. Or, or, or whatever it may be. You know what? Don't force someone to be a believer. Share your faith and be generous with your faith. But don't be rude with your faith. You're not the Holy Spirit. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't give someone new life. And grant someone repentance. I can't do those things. I'm not responsible to do those things. And neither are you. We pray for people. We share our faith with people. We can't force anyone into a relationship with God. We just allow God's work to happen in his timing. You know, Paul, when he was trying to encourage the church of Ephesus, he wrote a letter to them. It's 2 Timothy 2, 25. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. But kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Paul says when you, when you, take, when you take the gospel into the, the community in, in which you live, make sure you're gentle with it. Make sure you're, you're patient with them. Make sure you, you uh, share that sense of optimism we should all have as believers, that God's going to accomplish his will perfectly. He's going to expand his kingdom purposefully. So we want to be gentle and patient and optimistic. All those things that I'm not. <laughs> I feel like when I think about gentleness and especially when it comes to optimism, man, I'm the king of pessimism. Right? They're never going to believe. They're always going to hate my faith. Uh, this is never going to work. I, I, I have the tendency to fall into that pessimistic pit. But Scripture corrects that wrong thinking that I tend to gravitate towards. Scripture works on us like that. Scripture commands us when we get in that frame of mind and corrects us, turn that into gentleness. Turn that into patience. Hey, be optimistic. Do you believe God's sovereign or not? And then finally in this last line, it says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them, anointed them with oil. What's up with the oil? 
You ever notice that some pastors anoint with oil today even, right? And again, this is one of those differences. Sometimes, now this one's kind of all over the place. You may meet like Baptist pastors, some anoint with oil and some don't whenever they go to pray for someone and, and uh, want them to be healed and, and praying for their healing. You may see some Presbyterian pastors use oil and some may not. It's, it's all over the place. There's obviously nothing wrong with using anointing oil. I tend not to just because uh, there was a cultural thing happening here that's not happening in the culture that we live. Now, again, uh, I'm not criticizing any pastor who, who uses anointing oil when they go to pray for someone who needs healing. My dad does it all the time. So my dad, as I've mentioned before, he's a, uh, he, he was a bivocational pastor and still does ministry today. He anoints everybody with oil. Like, I call him the oil anointing son of a gun. He just, like, constantly, he's anointing. Like, if you, got, if you sneeze next to my dad, he'll be like, what? You need some oil? Like, no, I just, I just didn't take a leg today, Dad. <laughs> Calm down. Uh, but he, he anoints everyone with oil. It was, it, it was interesting uh, during the pandemic because my dad insists on using oil when, whenever he uh, prays for someone who wants healing. And um, I can make fun of him because he's my dad. And, uh, <laughs> and I'll talk to him later today and, told him, and tell him I did this. Uh, but during the pandemic, right, we, you can't come into contact with people who have COVID. And so this presented a problem. And so it, especially for him, because he wanted, he, he, you know, calling and praying for you over the phone, just, it just was not enough for him. He wanted to anoint you with oil. And so in the pandemic, he would take his anointing oil and pour it on cotton balls, put it in a Ziploc bag, put it in your mailbox with instructions on what scripture to read. And here, anoint yourself with oil. You got the COVID, I'll stay over here. <laughs> Oh, man, I got a big kick out of that. And he did it to so many people, and, and they would call me, your dad just sent me a Ziploc bag with cotton balls in it? Help me out. What's going on? Ah, he's Presbyterian. Let me just, I'll explain. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it was funny. But well, in, their, in their day, like, when it came to oils, different types of oils and stuff, it, it was, oil was used medicinally. And so uh, this was already associated with healing. Physicians would use oils of various kinds. Like if you opened up your essential oil business in that day, you made a killing, man. You made a killing. The every, like the, all the physicians are using the oils. And so it was already associated with healing because it was used like medicine. And so when a, an apostle went into the community of, uh, of, of people to share the gospel with them, they would take anointing oil to signal to the people there. We have come to heal. We have come to heal. Like a physician heals, only it's going to be miraculous. They weren't using the oil like physicians were. They weren't depending on the oil for people to be healed. They were depending on the power of the Holy Spirit to heal them. They were depending upon the authority that Jesus commissioned them with to heal those people from sickness and disease. And so that oil did not do anything. And so when my dad takes an anointing oil uh, a vial of anointing oil and anoints someone in a hospital bed. He understands that's not a magic potion. He understands the oil isn't actually doing anything. It symbolizes healing. And so he is convicted by how they used that in scripture to the point, as many pastors still are today, to continue to use that anointing oil whenever they pray for the sick. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with people using anointing oil and there's nothing wrong with not using uh, anointing oil, but they would be there to miraculously heal. So, again, 
this passage isn't necessarily a one-for-one -one on how to do evangelism. But it does give us some pretty remarkable teachings and principles uh, to apply to our life. And I, I just narrowed them down to three. The first one was this, sharing your faith. It's meant to be done together. If you are a Christian, you're going to have a built-in desire as a new creation to share the gospel with the world. And one of the means by which you do this is church community. It's how you share the gospel in this world. The most effective way you can share the gospel in this world is by participating in the local church, building relationships with other Christians, living life with other Christians, and you will naturally, as a new creation in him, begin to share the gospel in this world collectively as we scatter and gather. The second truth I, I tried to boil this down to is this, the, the success of all of these efforts, it depends on God. It ultimately depends on God, how freeing that is. I want to be a faithful believer. I want to take the gospel into this world. But if it's dependent upon me for this kingdom to expand, <laughs> that, that is a crushing responsibility that I know I can't live up to. But scripture corrects that wrongful thinking and teaches me, no, be faithful, be a part of the community uh, that is church, take the gospel into this world as you scatter and gather, and God will do his thing. He will expand his kingdom. His power is what grows his kingdom, not us. And the third truth I tried to boil this down to is, is be patient and wait on the Lord. He's going to draw people into himself as we share our faith with everyone. So that's my hope. That's my prayer. That's, my, that's why I wanted to slow down and just take these few verses, 7 through 13, because I want you to feel the weight of responsibility that we each and every one of us here individually have to share this truth with the world. You better feel that responsibility. It's not your pastor's responsibility exclusively. It's our responsibility to share our faith in this world. So you should feel the weight of that. But at the same time, Jesus is what will do this work in this world. All right? So we feel this obligation, but it's light as a feather because we, we, we lay our burdens on Christ and we take his truth into this world and the Holy Spirit is going to do the work that the Holy Spirit's going to do. And so we can trust in that and we can rest in that and, and be people of peace. Right? We don't have to, we don't have, to have a, a negative sense of urgency. We can have an appropriate sense of urgency that rests in the sovereign will of God. So let's pray before we go into a time of communion to remember this gospel that gives us life and that we are to share in this world. Lord, we thank you for this time in scripture to meditate upon these moments that took place in your earthly ministry. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the direction that we see you giving the disciples as you send them out as apostles. Just the, the practical teachings and, and strategies that you used. Lord, we thank you for just the incredible work that you, you did during this time and all that we can learn from it, Lord. And that we have this apostle-approved material to correct and inform our faith. Lord, I just pray that right now as we go into this time of communion, that we could focus on this gospel that brought us here in the first place. Lord, it's, it's so often that we start into church in our lives, and then we drift away from what it's really supposed to be, or we, 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 fall, we drift away from our first love, as you put it in Revelation. Lord, help us to always come back to that truth 
that we understand that we are fallen and broken creatures. We are not perfect. We struggle with sin. We, we, we are not right with you on our own. But you sent your son to live for us, to die for us, to intercede for us, Lord, that we can have eternal life with you free from sin. Help us to fall in love with that all over again each and every week as we take communion. And it's in your name.